0: Thanks, Pastor Chuck. That's an awesome testimony. Just the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the mercy of God. Never get tired of hearing the way that the Lord touches people's lives. He is good. So as Pastor Chuck said, my name is Ben McCowan, and I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. We're continuing series on Pursuing God. This is week three. And, first two weeks, Chris shared with us, and I just kind of want to go over real quick what he shared with us so we can uh, know where we're at in the series. Week one, he shared the vision and the invitation that we're focusing on out of Isaiah 55, and I actually have Isaiah 55 for us to read real quick, just because I think it's really the central part of of what we're going after, what we're diving into here. Isaiah 55 My steadfast, sure love for David. So the Lord is speaking and this call goes out. He's calling us to come, even in our poverty, even in our weakness, to three things. He calls us to the waters. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And the waters cleanse us. He calls us to come and to buy milk. And the milk nourishes us. And to buy wine, and the wine gives us joy. So Chris shared out of Isaiah 55, and we're talking about pursuing God. Last week, he talked about pursuing God with our minds. He talked about the promises of God and how we need to identify the excellent, noble, lovely things to set our minds on. How we need to be critical about what we feed our minds. And we need to be proactive in our pursuit of Him. We need to understand our minds and how they work so that we can be intentional about pressing into him. We take our thoughts captive, the lies of the enemy, the doubts and trash that lurk at the back of our minds, and we replace them with truth. He called us to set the tone of our day with something spiritual, by picking up your Bible or praying in the morning before you pick up your phone and check your email or hop on Facebook. And he finished by giving us two things to do this week that I just wanted to call to mind again. If you weren't here, or maybe if you forgot, he asked us to think about how are we pursue how are we stirred to pursue Jesus with our minds? How can we be proactive in pursuing God with your mind? Do you need a cup of coffee to sit down and just spend time with the Lord? Or do you need to have worship music playing? Or do you need to be in a quiet place? Or do you need to, you know, have a certain setting? You know, take advantage of that. Understand your mind and your heart and how it works and set aside that special time so that you can pursue the Lord with your mind. And the second thing he asked us to do was to prayerfully seek God for one thought. One truthful thought that replaces a lie that you've been believing. Instead of telling yourself, I'll never have joy or peace or hope, I'm not worthy of love, you would speak, I have the joy of the Lord and am worthy of his love. Find one truth to focus on, to replace the lies that you've been believing. So I just wanted to revisit those things because I think a lot of the times we can forget, you know, if we don't take notes or revisit or meditate on what was spoken or taught, it's really easy to miss what we can take out of what's been shared. So this week I want to narrow in on the subject of pursuing God with our heart. You know, what does it look like to pursue God with your heart? It seems pretty important. You hear Jesus talking about the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says it's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, and it's first on the list. Love the Lord God with all your heart. But how do we do that? How do we pursue God with our heart? See, our hearts are wild and unruly sometimes. Our heart will feel things we don't always want it to. It does things we don't always want it to. It says things that we don't always want it to, whether good or bad. How do we turn our hearts toward God and intentionally pursue Him with something so wild and unruly? I don't think we can answer that question entirely in one day, but I kind of want to give us a direction to head toward. I think one of the greatest ways we can turn our heart toward God and pursue Him is by reminding ourselves of who He is. It sounds really simple, but I think it's something that's really difficult to put into practice, to know who he is, to know God, to remind ourselves in the face of our storms and trials, to remind ourselves who he is and that he is powerful and big. But really, it's the meaning of our lives to discover him, to enjoy him, to serve him and love him. That's what we've been put here for. It's to discover him so we uncover the depths of who he is and we remind ourselves of these truths as we go throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our life. So I want to do that today. I believe the Lord is calling us to remember who he is. And I think the part of himself that he's revealing is Jesus as the bridegroom. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking and I just want to... Glance over this real quick. We don't need to read the whole parable, but it's the parable of the ten virgins. And Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And he goes on to explain how five of the bridesmaids were foolish and didn't have any oil with them. They weren't prepared for when the bridegroom came. Five bridesmaids were prepared. When the bridegroom came, they were the ones that got to enter into the wedding feast. But see, the thing in this parable is that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's speaking this parable to us. He's comparing the kingdom of heaven coming to a wedding. He's the bridegroom and the church is his bride. It's a model used all throughout the New Testament. If you want to turn to John 3 with me, John 3 starting in verse 28, or 27, sorry, John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So we see John the Baptist comparing Jesus to the bridegroom. His disciples came to him and asked him, why he wasn't doing doing anything about the fact that Jesus was baptizing other people as well. And John saw the reality that was Jesus' ministry would increase and his would decrease. And he was okay with that because he was a friend to the bridegroom. He wanted to see the bridegroom united with his bride. And then in Revelation 19, again, we see the model of Jesus as a bridegroom and his church as his bride. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, John is speaking. He says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. So at the end of all things, all of this, all of history, after the victory that the Lord has won, it culminates in a wedding feast. So Jesus is a bridegroom, and we are his bride. And in our effort to love him with our whole heart, as we pursue him with our heart, I think we need to dwell and meditate on the knowledge of Jesus as a bridegroom. When he reveals something about himself, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to glance over it when he reveals who he is to us. So I want to take a minute and dive into the context of what some of that would mean if we were a Jewish person, person in the first century and we understood what a wedding was like in Jewish culture. We know how weddings work in our culture, They operate a certain specific way. You know, there's a ceremony. The bride walks down the aisle. There's usually something kind of cheesy with some sand or a candle or a plant that everyone plants together and forgets about in six months. There's usually a cookie table if you're from around here. You know how awesome cookie tables are. But at the time of Jesus, their weddings worked a certain way too. There was a certain procedure that things went through. And I think we can miss part of what Jesus is revealing to us if we don't understand the context of what it means that Jesus is a bridegroom in Jewish culture. So we're going to look at the different parts to a Jewish wedding real quick. I can't pronounce half of these words, so I put them on the screen. Jacob, there's some notes. I'm going to do my best. So a Jewish wedding would begin with something called the Shadukin, and that's the arraignments. It's the first step in the marriage process, preliminary to the legal betrothal. So basically, the father in ancient Israel would select a bride for his son. Then the next phase in the marriage process was the ketubah, which in Hebrew it means Written. The ketubah was, and still is today, the marriage contract. The ketubah includes the provisions and conditions of the proposed marriage. You know, the things that you can't live without, so you put down on paper before the marriage. You know, on Tuesdays you're going to make me breakfast, or <laughs> on Friday I'm going out with my friends. <laughs> I mean, those aren't deal breakers for me, but maybe to someone. Next comes the mohar, or the bridal payment. This is sometimes called the bride price. It is a gift paid by the groom to the bride's family, but ultimately belongs to the bride. It changed her status and set her free from her parents' household. We see this illustrated in the Old Testament, you know, Isaac and Rebecca. Really, that's been a common practice throughout marriage process throughout the centuries. Next comes the mikvah, or the ritual immersion. And it's not really mentioned in scripture. We don't see it in the ceremonies detailed in the Old Testament, but it was common for the bride and groom to separately take a ritual immersion that would symbolize a period of spiritual cleansing before their betrothal. So let's pause for a second here before we go on to the other parts of the wedding process. I think it's so cool that marriage was God's idea before the world began. And you know, I believe marriage is a shadow of the kingdom of heaven, of the workings of heaven, just in the same way that the tabernacle was a shadow of the throne room of God, you know? So we see, you know, Beginning with the arraignments, the father chooses a bride for his son. The father chose us before the world began. It says in Ephesians 3, or sorry, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the father chose a bride for his son. And then the ketubah, the written contract. You know, we see that in the new covenant. In everything, all throughout scripture, that has been detailed. God said he would write his law on our minds and on our hearts. So the ketubah is there, it's in scripture. The mohar, the bridal payment. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus paid the ultimate price to purchase us. He paid with his life, with his blood. The bridal payment was paid. And then the mikvah, Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his mystery ministry, and we've been cleansed by him. First Corinthians 6, verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And next comes the period of betrothal. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that one. I- sin something like that. But this period means sanctification or set apart. The word really defines the purpose of the betrothal period. It's a time in which the couple are set aside to prepare themselves to enter into the covenant of marriage. The Jewish understanding of betrothal has always been much stronger than our modern understanding of what an engagement is. The betrothal was so binding that the couple would need a religious divorce in order to annul the contract. You see that with Joseph and Mary in the beginning of the Gospels. They hadn't yet come together. they weren't officially married, but if he wanted to leave her because she was pregnant, he would have had to divorce her. So after the couple had undergone their mikvah or ritual immersion, they would appear together under a hoopah, which is like a canopy. And they would express their intention of becoming betrothed or engaged in a public setting, like a ceremony. While under the hoopah, the couple participated in a ceremony in which items of value were exchanged, such as rings. And a cup of wine was shared to seal the betrothal vows. And from ancient times, the wedding canopy, the hupa, has been a symbol of a new household being planned. So they're under the new household, that covering So after this betrothal ceremony, the couple was considered to have entered into their betrothal agreement. This period was to last for one year. During this time, the couple was considered married, yet did not have sexual relations, and they continued to live separately until the end of the betrothal. So next, after the betrothal ceremony, comes the matan, or the bridal gift. So following this betrothal ceremony, the groom would return to his home to fulfill his obligations during the betrothal. But just prior to leaving, he would give his wife a matan, or a bridal gift, a pledge of his love for her. Its purpose was to be a reminder to his bride during their days of separation of his love for her, that he was thinking of her, and that he would return to receive her as his wife. And then during this betrothal period, the couple each had responsibilities. The groom would return to his father's house, he would start to prepare a new dwelling, a place for his bride and his new family. In biblical times, this wasn't done by building a new home. They would add on to the groom's father's household. And it wasn't the groom's duty to determine when the place he was preparing was finished. It was his father's determination that would give the go-ahead to receive his bride, and then the bride also would keep herself busy in preparation for the wedding day, usually specifically by preparing wedding garments that were uh, sewn and made ready. I think it's so cool how this lines up with Scripture. You know, we see Jesus in John 14 saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then we see the bridal gift, the matan. He leaves us with the Holy Spirit before he departs to prepare that place for us. See, the first coming of Jesus was the betrothal. He betrothed himself to us. He entered into a legally binding contract. And I think it's important to note, you know, for a divorce to happen in Jewish culture, the bride couldn't choose to get a divorce. Only the husband could make that decision. Only he can choose to divorce and break that contract. And he is faithful to his word. So he's gone to prepare a place for himself. He left us with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then finally... We have the nisuin, or the marriage itself. The final step in the wedding process, the Hebrew word means to carry. So this is a graphic description, a graphical description as the bride would be waiting for her groom to come to carry her off to her new home. The period of the betrothal was a time of great anticipation as the bride waited for the arrival of her betrothed. One of the unique features with a biblical Jewish wedding was the time of the groom's arrival. The time of the groom's arrival was to be a surprise. The bride took the betrothal very seriously and she knew the approximate timing but the exact hour or day was uncertain. So the father of the groom would give the final approval for the marriage to begin and the bride and her bridal party were always to be ready. And we see this in the parable that Jesus shared at the beginning of Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. It was customary for one of the groom's party to go ahead of the bridegroom, leading the way to the bride's house and shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And this would be followed by the sounding of a shofar. At the sounding of the shofar, the entire wedding processional would go through the streets of the city to the bride's house, and the groomsmen would again set up the hoopah. There would be a blessing over another cup of wine. There would be promises and vows. And then the pinnacle of the joyful celebration would begin, which was the marriage supper, the marriage feast. It was a seven-day feast full of food, music, dance, and celebration. After the festivities, the husband was free to bring his bride to their new home to live together as husband and wife in the full covenant of marriage. We see Jesus in Matthew 26 verse 29 say at the last supper after drinking and eating with his his disciples he says I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. See all of creation is looking forward to the marriage feast of the lamb to the victory of the Lord. And so I think that we need to understand if we see Jesus as the bridegroom, if we see the way that the Father has orchestrated all throughout history, the wedding process of heaven, I think we need to turn our eyes toward that and meditate on it if we want to pursue God with our hearts. I think the idea of pursuing God with your heart as a commandment is a little strange. You know, the Lord says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart soul, mind, and strength. I think that's kind of a weird commandment when you really think about it. Like, there's no way you could command somebody to love you. Can you just imagine, like, this guy likes this girl, and she owes him a favor, and so she's like, well, what do you want? Like, he's like, I want you to love me. That's what I want from you. That doesn't work like that. Like, you can't command somebody to love you. You can't force somebody to love you. You can't even really ask somebody to love you. It just happens, right? It's something that naturally occurs through relationship. So I think it's important to recognize that that's what the Lord's calling us to, but it can't just happen based on hear and obey, you know? You can't just hear that commandment and obey it just because you want to, just because you will yourself to. We can't just muster up love on command. I think one of the first people that really got the idea of Jesus as the bridegroom and the love that he has for us was David. David said in Psalm 27, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?' "'The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid?' "'When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall.'" Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, David knew the Lord. He knew him as his protector, as his savior, as is God, and he longed for him. One thing have I desired with the Lord that I'm going to seek. He knew that the Lord was the only thing that would satisfy. That sounds like love, doesn't it? Longing. We can look at his creation as a reflection of him. We can look at our earthly love, at our earthly marriage, at our relationships, even in their small, weak state, as a glimpse of what his love is like. I'm sure most of you have felt this way before, husbands and wives. You know, when you love someone, you long for them. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be watching paint dry, but as long as you're with that person, you're content. You want to protect them, to hold them close, to make them laugh, to comfort them, to carry them in trouble. You want to make them laugh. You want to hear their heart and their thoughts and their secrets. You want to be near them. Can you imagine how Jesus feels about us? He's the greatest bridegroom you've ever heard of. He's more in love with you than you could possibly know. So to pursue God with our heart, we don't need a list of commandments to obey. We need to dive into a relationship with him. I think there's three practical ways that we can do that that I want to leave you with. First, to pursue God with your heart, you need to remind yourself of who he is as I said in the beginning, as we've been you know, pursuing that for these last 30 minutes. Get to know Jesus as the bridegroom. Take that into your secret place, into the time you spend with him. Ask him about who he is. Find Jesus as the bridegroom in scripture. Secondly, to pursue God with your heart, you need to say no to other lovers. I think this is really important, and Chris shared with us a little bit about this last week. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel and he has called out the prophets of Baal. They've been leading Israel astray. And he calls them out and he challenges them and they prepare two bulls. And he says, we will put them on the altar and we will cry out to our God and whichever God answers with fire, he is God, whether Baal or the Lord. So I just want to read you this real quick, just a piece of it. Starting in verse 26, 1 Kings 18, it says, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. You see, idolatry is committing adultery with another god. Idols are abusive. They require you to dance for fire. They require your blood and your life, and they give you nothing in return. No one answered. No one paid attention. We have to say no to the things that would steal our affection for God. We have to keep our eyes and our hearts on Him. The third thing, to pursue God with your heart, you need to leave behind the things of old. Just a chapter later in First Kings 19, the Lord called Elijah and told him to go to Elisha, son of Shaphat, and to call him as his successor. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elijah left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen, and he slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And he went with Elijah as his assistant. You see, Elijah... He came and he threw his cloak across Elisha and he called him into a life with God. And Elisha wanted to turn back to the old things to say goodbye to his father and mother. And Elijah replied, go on back but think about what I have done to you. And upon thinking about it, Elisha turns around and he doesn't go to his father and mother, but he returns to the field that he was plowing and he kills his oxen and he cuts up the cart And he cooks them and he gives them away. I think we need to burn the bridges behind us to the old things, to the things that we were before the Lord, to the people we were before the Lord, to the things that drew our attention, that might not necessarily be idols, that might not necessarily be demonic in nature, but the things that we need to leave behind to pursue the Lord. You know, I think we need to cast off good things to pursue great things. We have to say goodbye to the old to step into the glory that God has for us. So we're going to pray, and I'd invite you, if you want to know Jesus as the bridegroom, if you want your knowledge to increase in that, your relationship to increase with him in that, in that way, in that aspect, or if you feel like you've been distracted, if you feel like your eyes haven't been on him, if you want more, If you want to pursue God with your heart and you want to join with somebody and pray for that, pray towards that, we're going to have the ministry team come up. And I just encourage you this week to keep your hearts pursuing him. Keep your eyes and your hearts on him. So Father, I thank you that you presented your son to us as a savior, as our redeemer, as a faithful witness to who you are and most of all I thank you that he is our bridegroom that we the church are your bride I ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us more and more so that we would know you Lord just set our hearts on fire with desire for you take us deeper in our relationship with you we thank you that there's no hindrances that there's nothing holding us back that you have paid the price to remove every hindrance of love. Lord, ask for your anointing and blessing on each one of us this day and this week. In your name we pray. Amen. So blessings on you, you guys, are released.